Glad the uh, weather is holding off till tomorrow. You know, from the very beginning, uh, I think we've seen that it's been God's plan to bless the people that he created, right? From Genesis 1:28 says that God designed to bless the people uh, that he created. Uh, the word bless in the Old Testament is actually the most frequent word that appears in the entire Old Testament. And uh, the word bless uh, was generally understood as the bestowal or the giving of good, right? And uh, it's primarily located in God's presence in, in himself. Uh, God is for us. He's not against us. And that's like the major theme of the Bible from Genesis all the way through to the end of Revelation. And yet lots of people feel like they're afraid to get close to God because they really have it in their mind somehow that God is against them. And that if I get too close to him, he's going to ruin my life rather than build my life and bless my life and fill it uh, with good. Uh, But that's not true. Um, The word blessed a lot of times is just translated happy. And uh, Psalm 1, I think you're probably familiar with it. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Happy is the man who doesn't listen to all the advice that's in the world that's against God, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Uh, But happy is the man who delights in the laws of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed or happy is the person who gets close enough to God uh, to allow God uh, to build good into their life. Um, That's the life that Jesus called the abundant life. And the main characteristic of the abundant life is that your life is so filled uh, and there is a surplus to your life to the point that God actually spills over out of your life onto other people. And so the very next verse in the first Psalm, so, you know, what's a blessed person like? A blessed person is like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit every season. And its leaf doesn't wither. It's got everything it needs. It's supplied. It's year-round. It's forever. It goes on, and it supplies fruit. For who? The tree doesn't eat its own fruit, right? The fruit is for the next person. It's for the next person. It's for people like us. And so this God who created us wants to bless us and build good into our lives. But people from the very beginning have resisted the blessing of God. From the very beginning, right? We saw in our study so far, uh, way back here in Genesis, that there were three major catastrophes that happened because people basically said, no, I'm not going to trust you, God. I'm going to do my own thing. And so we had the fall, the flood, and uh, what some have called the flop of the Tower of Babel. Uh, But people from the beginning resist this great promise that God makes to bless his people, um, summarized really in the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3, as we've seen. And uh, God promises through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth right down to you and me today. And uh, the real question is, you know, do I believe God? Do I believe that God has for me goodness and blessing and that God wants to fill my life to the point that it overflows and that I become then an influence on the people around me to the glory of God? Do I believe that that promise that God gave right in the very beginning, you know, has carried its way all all the way through and that God has been faithful and that it's come all the way down to me. Now, do I believe it? Because everything we receive from God comes by faith. Remember in Genesis chapter 15, which we looked at last week, God makes this oath on top of his word, and given us his promise, he takes an oath, and he swears by himself, because there's nobody you know, that's greater than God that he can swear by. 
And uh, you remember in Genesis 15 how he takes this oath upon himself. And then uh, finally we see at, right after that, Abraham chooses to believe God, that God is telling the truth. He's going to base his life on the fact that God is telling the truth. And uh, he believes God, and God credits that belief to Abraham's account as righteousness. How do we get right with God? How do we stay right with God? We trust him. You, if you go on to read the rest of the Bible, you'll see that everything that comes to us from God comes through faith, through trusting him, through taking him at his word, uh, through daring to believe him to the point that we'll base our life on uh, what God has promised. And so that's what happens. And um, the promise of God then goes from Abraham to Abraham's son, Isaac. And, uh, you know, you can read through uh, Genesis and see all of this. But, uh, and then it goes from Isaac's son to Jacob. Uh, Jacob, in turn, has 12 sons, the youngest of whom is a guy named Joseph, uh, who's at the end of the book of uh, Genesis in the Bible. And uh, Joseph is a type of Christ. He's a type of Savior. He's a prefiguring of Jesus, who is to come, who's the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God. Uh, in, in Christ, you remember, all the promises of God are yes. And uh, the whole Old Testament is pointing to this so-called seed of a woman in Genesis 3.15. And Joseph, then, is a, this type of Savior. And uh, he ends up being rejected by his own family, by his own brothers, and by his own uh, tribe, if you will. But he becomes a ruler in a different kingdom in Egypt. And eventually, Abraham's whole family, all of those descendants, move to Egypt, uh, and they're saved by Joseph. Uh, there are uh, 400, they're there in Egypt for 430 years. Um, and if you, um, you know, want to follow this along in um, Exodus chapter 1 and uh, verse uh, 5, uh, you'll read that there were 70 people. Then, uh, let's see here. Then Joseph died uh, and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied exceedingly strong uh, so that the land was filled with them. Um, so what happened is uh, there were 70 uh, people who ended up down there. And, uh, you know, and then uh, eventually that 70 people, if you go to um, Genesis chapter 12. I'm sorry, I'm in Exodus, and that's what's wrong here. Exodus chapter 12. Uh, then you'll see that there were, um, there were like 600,000 men, verse 37 and 38. The people of Israel journeyed, journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. About 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So it went from 70 to 600,000 men, plus women and children. So God greatly multiplied the people in the 430 years that they were there. It also says in verse 38 that a mixed multitude also went up with them, which implies that some of the Egyptian people saw the virtue of God and wanted his blessing and joined uh, the Israelites as they left. So it was all of Israel, but there was a mixed group. And then verse 40 uh, says the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And uh, so, you know, all that to say God is true to his word. Part of the promise that God made to Abraham was that Abraham would become a nation, a great nation. Starts out as just an individual without even a son. And God says, through you, I'm going to make a nation, and through that nation, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth, uh, which he eventually does in the person of Christ. And so for 430 years, they're blessed and they're uh, changed. And as you know, that nation is the nation of Israel, out of which Jesus eventually comes. And um, Jacob, you know, there's Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. 
But um, Jacob's name was actually changed to Israel. And uh, it's always interesting to me that people have different uh, ideas about Israel and so forth. But do you know what the name Israel means? When God changed the name of Jacob to Israel, getting ready to go from an individual to a nation, you know what Israel, the word, actually means? It means strives with God or God strives. The name of the people that God chose were people that he knew would argue with him and wouldn't listen to him and would strive with him and fight with him and uh, resist him and so on and so forth. God didn't choose Israel because it'd be easy. God didn't choose Israel because they were the choicest people on the face of the earth. They were a group of slaves. They were pretty crude. They were pretty blue-collarish, right? And uh, you know why God chose Israel, in my opinion? God chose Israel to show the rest of the world that he's true to his promises. If you study the history of Israel, even today, and you find you know, where Israel is at today and the promises that God made, and you see the faithfulness of God through all the ups and downs, it gives you confidence that this God is able to deliver on whatever he promises. I think God chose Israel as people who fight with him, a people, I mean, there's all kinds of, if you know the story of Israel, uh, you know there's all kinds of issues that happen between God and Israel. And uh, in, in the New Testament, it says all of those things that happen between God and Israel are written down, which means the Old Testament, for our benefit on whom the end of the ages have come. It's so that we could learn. What do we learn from looking at that? Well, I think the number one lesson is you can trust this God. He will do what he says. And, uh, you know, um, in um, Genesis 32 and uh, verse 28, uh, then uh, God said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you've prevailed. <laughs> you've fought with God, but God is so true and so faithful to his promises that you've prevailed, uh, that you've survived, might be a, a better uh, translation of that. Uh, the whole history of Israel is about striving with God um, and, and this whole uh, drama that unfolds. In chapter 35, uh, just uh, God appeared to Jacob again, verse 9, and uh, when he had come and, and he blessed him, because that's what God does, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply, right? Um, so all that to say, you know, the character of the people that God chose to reveal himself through are people that strive with God, people that argue and fight and try to uh, be their own God and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and Jacob, as I said, has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. They all die in Egypt before uh, the Israelites leave and so forth. But the family of Abraham becomes the nation of Israel through the exodus from Egypt. And all through the Old Testament, God's always referring back to the exodus, to the day that God took them out from slavery, out from underneath the bondage. Uh, the whole book of Exodus in the Bible is about the birth of this new nation. And so the promise of God goes from individuals to families to a nation. And uh, Moses is their first leader. Uh, the book of Exodus starts to define the people of God, the people of the promise, the Israelites. And I would suggest that there are three major themes to the establishment of the people as a nation to the Israelites. Um, first of all is um, redemption or uh, deliverance out from underneath slavery. And that's the Exodus, right? And then there's the whole issue of how do people respond to this God who blesses you? So there's the issue of morality. And so you have the Ten Commandments. And God says, look, here's ten ways that you can uh, show that you're my people. 
Because God's beginning to define uh, a people for himself. In fact, he calls them, you know, my people. And then the third part is worship. The whole uh, third part of the book of Exodus, all about the tabernacle, all about very specific qualifications. God says, look, this is how you worship me. Uh, This is how I want to be worshipped. And so there's all these uh, stipulations about worship. And so in Exodus, God reveals a lot more about himself as he goes forward. And uh, one of the things that God reveals is his name. And uh, we uh, sang about it this morning. His name is going to be I Am in Exodus chapter 3 and uh, verses 13. uh, Moses says to God, you know, God comes to Moses in the burning bush and says, you know, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go and so on and so forth. And Moses says uh, back to God, look, if I go to the people of Israel and I say to them, you know, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, well, what's his name? What am I going to tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. That's what you can tell them. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Uh, That's what God chooses for his name. I am present. I will be with you. I am. I am always there. I am what existed before you existed and so forth. I am is the promise of God's presence. And it's confirmed in um, chapter 6 of Exodus and uh, verse 3. And um, this is a very interesting verse. This is, uh, you know, verse 3 says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, look, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I I did not make myself known to them. Uh, To the uh, patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I revealed myself as uh, God Almighty. El Shaddai is really what the uh, Hebrew is. El Shaddai, you've probably heard that name of God. It means God Almighty. It means God's just going to do what God's going to do. Like God exists and God's going to do what God's going to do. He's going to make an oath on his own. He's just going to, he's just declaring himself. This is what I'm going to do. I am going to bless the people that I made. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it through Abraham and through a nation and through Jesus. And eventually to all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through me. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just declaring myself. I'm God Almighty. I can do what I want. But now God says, I'm also Yahweh, which means the Lord. And uh, now God is going to enter into a relationship that's reciprocal. And uh, it becomes a different kind of a ball game. And God reveals a, a further revelation about himself, this progressive uh, revelation. God is working his promise. But now the whole theology of redemption and deliverance and salvation is revealed in God taking his people back from the slavery of Egypt, uh, where uh, the Egyptians had held them in this grip of slavery. They were very valuable to him there. Uh, to them because they were making the bricks and building, you know, the nation of Egypt. They were slaves and so forth. And then there's this exodus, this taking away. It's a picture of the New Testament salvation of Jesus setting us free from bondage to sin and to Satan and to ignorance and to darkness and to all the things that keep people all bound up and keep them from experiencing the freedom of the blessing that God wants to give us. And I think it's very important for us to realize and to recognize, to notice that God redeems Israel. He takes his people out from bondage before he ever gives them the Ten Commandments. First he saves them. First he delivers them. First he blesses them. First he sets them free. 
Then he says, look, now that you're my people, now that you're my people, now that you're, you know, uh, have been set free, and if you appreciate it and you value it and you, you're, you're going to uh, appreciate the blessing, and here's how to live. Here's the way that you can thank me. You can be like me. You can be like me. And the Ten Commandments are basically, you know, uh, an explanation of how to live as God's people. Uh, after salvation is accomplished, then comes our response. First comes the deliverance. It's a gift from God. It's accomplished by God Almighty, El Shaddai, all by himself. But after that salvation is accomplished, then comes our response. What are you going to do now that you've been set free? If you remember some of the people, they were like, I, I want to go back into bondage. I don't like manna. I like, you know, the onions and garlic that we had back in Egypt and, and this and that and the other thing. And they moan and groan and complain. And, and, you know, they don't see the blessing that God's trying to give them. They don't trust the promise that God made to them about what's in their future. Right? And so they want to go back, and they want to hang on to the old life and so forth. And, and God didn't just release these slaves so that they could go do whatever they feel like. God gives them freedom so that they could become his people, so that they could be nurtured by him, so they could be blessed by him, so they could live in a land filled with uh, you know, milk and honey overflowing, so that those people could be an example and a demonstration to all the rest of the people in the entire world. To the end of the world, to the end of history. God had a plan, a purpose for his people. He gives them freedom so that he could nurture them and make them his own people and bless them to become this special nation, which becomes a blessing to the whole world. And so he teaches them how to live. You know, our men's uh, Bible study just started this past Thursday on the book of Proverbs. And uh, Proverbs is all about how to live. How to live a great life. I mean, it's really very practical. It's not very theological. I think it's written for guys because there's no big words. There's no hard concepts. I mean, it's very straightforward. You can't miss the meaning of things. Really hard to misinterpret some stuff. You know, I mean, it's very black and white. And um, so I'm pretty excited about us getting together and, and studying that. And I just remind you guys uh, uh, of that. Six o'clock on Thursday mornings. Anyway, up until this point, you know, the presence of God is kind of one-sided. God uh, swears by himself to do what he said he's going to do. Uh, but now, for the first time, there's a response from the people. And so if you go to Exodus chapter 19, um, you begin to see this uh, response of the people to their freedom, to being set free, to being uh, redeemed, to being brought back by God. Uh, the first time the response of the people is to take an oath of loyalty to God. Um, Moses meets with God in verse 3. Uh, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you uh, say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. You shall be my people, my treasured possession among all the other peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You are going to be set apart for my purposes. Okay? And uh, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so, and you skip down to verse 8. All the people answered, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Wow. 
their sight. Right? They're at the front end of uh, their experience with God. And uh, they're making this commitment. They're kind of taking an oath of their own. Uh, the promise of God now takes on this element of relationship. God says, if you'll listen, if you'll be my people, if you'll cooperate with me, if you'll stop fighting, if you'll stop being Israel, if you'll stop striving with me, you will be my treasured possession. Right? And the people are like, oh, sounds good. We'll do it. Uh, my treasured possession. And so God uh, calls Israel his firstborn. Uh, I won't take the time to kind of ferret that all out, but again, it's a prefigurement of uh, the only begotten son of Jesus. He calls this nation firstborn. I think first is the sense of um, prominence or uh, honor. It's like his, his people, and they're going to have a unique role uh, in the world uh, throughout all of uh, Earth's history, and uh, they represent the seed, Jesus, who is to come. Uh, and uh, just like uh, Jesus, you remember, you know, had a hide down in Egypt, and Jesus is called up out of Egypt, and Jesus is called, this is my beloved son, you know, in whom I am well pleased. And so Israel becomes this prefigurement, this um, uh, instruction for us to understand the relationship that God provides for us uh, in the person of Christ. And so then in Exodus chapter 20, uh, we have the giving of the Ten Commandments. And uh, um, when this comes, again, it's after they're delivered, it's after they're saved, it's after God blesses them uh, with his goodness and his grace uh, by this gift of uh, delivering them out from slavery. After the people are saved, um, after they're redeemed and brought back to God, uh, the Ten Commandments are not grounds for redemption, right? This is the biggest mistake that, that just so many people believe. Uh, and I, tell, I say this all the time, but if you have a conversation with anybody and you can get to the point where you ask them, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? And they say yes, and you say why, they almost always will say because they're a good person, because they've kept the Ten Commandments, or so they say. And then I say, well, have you ever read them? No, but compared to other people, I'm pretty good as far as, you know, I watch the news, I see the, you know, the really bad guys who are shooting people, and, and so I feel, so, you know, listen, your salvation is never dependent on obedience to the Ten Commandments. We, you know, the Ten Commandments are not the basis. The, the morality is not the basis on which we become accepted by God. The basis on which we're accepted by God is our faith in the promises of God. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is uh, 1 John 2, 2, which says that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for our sins, but he died for all the sins of all the people in all the world. Blows my mind to think that there are people just walking around, and you know a bunch of them. It's the majority of people who have no clue that God already paid the price for their redemption and that all they have to do is believe him and take him at his word and his promise, and they could be set free. You see? And, and people who don't hear that, don't, and it's our fault as a church. I mean, we got the wrong message out there. And people, you know respond to the wrong message, and I think are confused. The good news is that this is about a blessing from God since the beginning, that God is for you, not against you, that he's done everything necessary. He's put it all out on the table. He's covered the sins of every... You've never met a person that you can't have the privilege of going to and say, do I have good news for you? Whatever it is that you messed up in your life, it's already forgiven. It's already forgiven. All you've got to do is take it. By faith, all you got to do is believe that God is telling you the truth. And uh, these people, God's people, they're blessed, but they're blessed to be a blessing. 
They're blessed to be a blessing because although God chose these people uh, to be his treasured possession, he chose them so that they could accomplish his purposes in the rest of the world, right? And uh, they strive with him. They fight him. Uh, uh, this God, God's people are to be like God, right? So God spells out how to live. Uh, Yahweh enters into a relationship with this young nation. I am the Lord. I am in charge, you know? And uh, uh, when you're uh, one of God's people, when God is first in your life, when you're a Christian, uh, well, you want to know what's important to God. And so the Ten Commandments pretty much just tell you uh, how God thinks and about uh, how to get a, the first half of the Ten Commandments, the first portion of it, first four commandments are all about getting along with God. They just talk to you about how to be a spiritual being, how to be in a relationship with God. And, uh, you know, the very first commandment is you should have no other small g gods before me. Uh, the first commandment is very simple. It's what our whole church, you know, life is based on, God first. First thing God says is, look, I don't want any competition. I'm God. There isn't any others. You know, and so be real careful. And you'll see there's a small G. Don't let any other small G God. And uh, I think, you know, well, what are some of those small G gods? Well, money's a big one. Career's a big one. Family's a big one. You know, knowledge, ability, talents, power, you know. Uh, all of those things have a way of getting into first place in our life. And God says, look, don't let that happen. Let your claim to fame be that you know me and that you're related to me. I think God revealed it to um, Jeremiah in a way that's easy to remember, good passage to memorize. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. And let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. What's your claim to fame? That he understands and knows me. What's the alternative to all the small g gods in the world? That he knows and understands the God who created him who redeemed him, who loves him, and who has a future for him. What's your claim to fame? What's your identity? Who are you? God says, look, I'm in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight in, declares the Lord. Here's his three main competitors, Right? wisdom. We think we're smart ourselves. We think we know better, so we strive with God. Uh, might, power, right? Money, position, all of those kinds of things. Uh, riches, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast about this, that he knows and understands the God of the universe who created him and who holds his future in, their, in his hand and who's for him and who's out to bless him and so on and so forth. Don't forget, you know, these people are named strives with God, and that's their history. Uh, so instead, uh, the people resist, they rebel, they fight, they pretend, they lie, and uh, so God has to send them into exile. They're like teenagers. God has to send them away for a while. God even divorces them for a while. In Jeremiah chapter 3, God talks about how he gave a certificate of divorce to the people of Israel to get rid of them for a while. But his heart is so big that, you know, he, if, he, if you keep reading in Jeremiah, he calls them back. Um, and then he calls them spiritual prostitutes. He says, you swore your loyalty to me, but you give it to everybody else. And all of that, and um, on many occasions. And yet God keeps his promises. That's, I think Romans 9, 10, and 11 in the New Testament talk about the future of Israel. Why? Because God keeps his promises regardless of the failures of people. 
And um, it's just a fascinating thing. And you and I, you know, we live in a day where we can see this. It's in the news on a regular basis. The Ten Commandments were given so that people would know how to demonstrate their love for God in response to being saved from the miserable life of slavery. First, God saves us by grace, and if we trust him and we appreciate it, then here's ten ways to say to God, I love you. The Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are a mirror which show us ourselves. And uh, if you go to Jesus' day, Jesus, of course, takes the Ten Commandments and makes his own comments on them in Matthew 5 to 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus exposes not the letter of the law of the commandments that God is interested in, like the Pharisees, but it's the spirit of the law. Because the spirit of the Ten Commandments is the very spirit of God. And God's design is to make his people to be like him. And uh, on this side of Christ, we have, of course, Christ as our example. But I'd like to just say uh, in closing, you know, if you believe God, if you believe his promise that he wants to bless you, and uh, you do uh, allow him to become first in your life, um, the Ten Commandments um, elaborated on by Jesus give us ample, I think, um, confidence in how to live. Ample confidence in what's right and wrong and what's good and bad and what's, you know, there's ample confidence that we can have. Uh, And again, I would say um, that the major roadblock to really believing in God is the issue of pride. Pride. The Bible talks about it all over the place. Uh, The Ten Commandments have a way, they have an immediate effect of reducing pride in people's lives. If you just take a little time this afternoon and read Exodus 20 and just ask yourself, you know, have I ever broken any of these things? You will find your pride reduced and your humility on the rise. And I think it's a purpose that God gave us this sort of mirror to be able to see uh, what we're really like compared to what God made us to be, which is to be like himself. And so God redeems us. He sets us free from our enemy. He sacrifices his son. And, um, and, and pride says, wow, I must really be significant that God would do all that for me, right? Um, but humility uh, turns around and says, you know, when, they, when you look at the Ten Commandments, I don't even have the juice, right, to keep one of these commandments, let alone all of them. And God shows us the, the truth about our nature and about uh, what's wrong with us. And, and so humility becomes a reality whenever I enter into a dependent relationship with God through his promise. Uh, when God is close, humility is on the rise. When God is distant, when God is there, but he's not in a relationship with me, when I'm not close to him, when God is just El Shaddai, God Almighty, yeah, I know he's there, I know he's in charge, I know he's a big guy, all of that kind of stuff, but I'm not in a relationship, I'm not close to him. Well, then pride rises up, and I stand in the gap between where God and I exist. And everything becomes about me, and it becomes about self, and I begin to take the place of God. And uh, that's really what pride is. It's, it's the result of unbelief in the promises of God. Pride ignores God and uh, seeks self-satisfaction, right? Self-fulfillment. There's a whole bunch of uh, self kind of stuff, self-determination, self-sufficiency, self-satisfaction. It's independence from God. It's uh, looking for um, um, my identity or my boast, my claim to fame uh, in wisdom and what I know and what I think I know or in riches, you know, or in strength and in power and, and so on and so forth. It's independence from God. It's the essence of pride. On the other hand, It's very humbling to realize that the source of all of my joy is outside of myself. 
and located in the blessing of God. That I am dependent on God in order for me to be blessed, in order for me to be happy, in order for me to have joy, in order for me to have security about my future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very humbling to recognize I can't do anything about the things that mean the most to me myself. But praise God that he is for us and not against us, and his commitment is to bless. And you and I live in a time when we can look back over the history of mankind and see that God is good on his word. You can trust him. You can bank your life on it, and that's what faith is. Putting trust in the promises of God to the point that you bank your life on it and adjust accordingly, and the Ten Commandments helps us do that. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we are so thankful as we sort of trace this promise. You're a promise-making God, and you start at the very beginning in Genesis, and you start making uh, this great promise to bless the people that you created. And sometimes we confess, Father, that we don't feel blessed, right? We, we've got all of this stuff that happens to us in life and, and all of the ways in which uh, life comes against us and the enemy uh, comes against us. We feel like we're enslaved sometimes, like the people of Israel into Egypt and uh, that life is using us, and, and we're supposed to be your people. But when we look back, we see, Father, that it's bigger than that, that you are, in fact, in the process of blessing your people. And even though at times we don't see it, lots of times the reason for our problems is really our choice to be like the Israelites, to strive with you, to fight with you, instead of giving in, instead of surrendering, instead of submitting, instead of recognizing, wow, you are the source of my joy. You are the source of my happiness, my blessing, my confidence, my future, my delivery, uh, my salvation, uh, my eternity. You are the source of being forgiven for all the stuff that I've messed up on. You are the source of my freedom. And it's humbling for us when we recognize that, Father. We turn into worshipers. And uh, I think, you know, worship becomes a lifestyle uh, for those of us who choose to live increasingly more in your presence so that you're the one who is uh, prominent in our lives uh, to the degree, Father, that we do recognize that everything that means the most to us, our whole boast, our whole claim to fame, our whole identity is wrapped up in the fact that you have chosen to love the people you created all the way down to us, and we have chosen to take advantage of that and to believe you. To that end, I pray that you would help us, Father, to live as your people in the world, and that the abundance that that creates would spill out of us onto other people, so that other people would know that their sins and all the stuff, Father, has already been paid for, and that we would take advantage of the privilege of simply announcing this good news of your blessing. For Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Now we're going to ask our ushers if they'd come and